the boss came to me and said, hey, I want you to be the one who closes. I want you to be the one who gets everything organized for our big morning with the boss. I was working for Hy-Vee at the time in the produce department in Albert Lee, Minnesota, and this was the moment where I told myself, I have arrived. I told myself, I am the best fruit stacker to ever work in the Hy-Vee industry. It was the pinnacle moment in my produce career. You could say it might have been the greatest career moment in any fruit stacking career. The big bosses were coming from Iowa. The top executives of Hy-Vee were coming to our small store in Albert Lee, Minnesota. And the produce manager came to me and said, I want you to be the one who has the final say over the produce aisle before the bosses come. For a person who works in the produce department, there's no greater moment, is there? You get to be the one who gets to stack the fruit, organize those terrible things, vegetables, before the bosses come. You have the opportunity. You've been asked to use your skills to make it look good for the ones who have authority. That's a big moment. I thought I had arrived. Everybody has those moments in their life, in their career fields, where you think that's the pinnacle of experience. That's the moment when you say you've arrived. If you're a quarterback of the football team, you've arrived when you're in the Super Bowl. When you're a chef, you've arrived when you're on TLC. You have those moments, those pinnacles, where you know this is the full experience. I am at the top right now. Well, in our Christian lives, in the God experience, when is it that we say, I have arrived? This is the ultimate experience. What would cause the Christian to say, this is it, I've arrived? For most Christians, it's Easter Sunday, right? For the Christian community, Easter Sunday is the biggest moment. Everybody shows up in their finest dressed clothes because that's it. That's the moment. Yet for us this morning, I want to lay out that there's a different moment for the Christian. That's the ultimate experience. There's a different moment for the Christian. That's the pinnacle of the Christian life. And it might not be what you think it is. And it's most likely not what the world thinks it is. Because the pinnacle for the Christian, the ultimate experience, is not being in a position of authority, but the pinnacle is being in a position of love. Being in a position of love with someone in need. The ultimate experience of Christianity, where you're experiencing the fullest expression of Christianity, this side of heaven, is when you are serving the least of these. People who are struggling, people who have needs, whether they be financial, spiritual, emotional, physical. I know what you're thinking, Pastor, come on. I mean, yes, that's important as a Christian, but that's not the ultimate moment of being a Christian. Well, let's look together in God's Word this morning. I want to take just a quick little journey to show us the unity of the Scriptures, that this is it, of expressing love to other people. People. This is the pinnacle. Look with me, if you would, in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. About halfway through the Bible, to the right a little bit, you'll find the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 58. 
The prophet is bringing a message from God to the people of Israel. Israel is God's people group. And so God is reminding them what he wants them to do at different times. The people have strayed and done wrong things. People have not been engaged in what God wants them to be engaged in. And so he says here in Isaiah 58, recorded for us, starting at verse 6, the prophet says, Is not this the fast that I choose? I'm going to stop right there for a moment. He says fast. He's really pointing to an experience that the Israelites would have known as a time when they would have went without food, when they would have went without something, sort of nourishment, for the, focus on, for the purpose of focusing on God. And they had different fasts scheduled throughout the year where there are special moments they were focusing on God. And so the prophet is saying, hey, here's the fast that I would choose. To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. If you have a pen, just underline, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You might be thinking, God's going to be my bumper? What? Okay, this is a little bit different language we don't use, but the glory simply means the presence or the magnitude, the manifestation of the creator of the universe. And so God is saying, hey, hey, the presence of God, his greatness is going to be present with you. Your protector is going to abide alongside of you when? When? When you just participated in that fast, and that fast was not a time without food, that fast was a time of loving. That the glory of the Lord is present when we're loving, clothing the naked, bringing food to the hungry. The prophet just makes it clear right there. You can have all these special festivals, but if you have all these festivals and you don't have the true fast, guess what? You're not going to have the glory of the Lord. You're saying to yourself, well, pastor, the prophets always use dramatized language. They're just overemphasizing it a little bit. Well, let's skip the prophets then, and let's go right to the boss. Let's go to Jesus himself. Go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, Jesus is giving his followers kind of this picture of the final days what's described as the end judgment of when creation has come to an end, Jesus returns, God is establishing a new kingdom forever. And so he gives them this picture of what's going to happen at the judgment. Matthew 25, we're going to look at verse 41 through 46. So he's giving this picture of what he's saying to people who he's going to say, hey, come to God, and then to others who he's going to say, get away from me. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, Then he, the judge, will say to those on his left, Depart from you, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, 
or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is one of the most sobering passages of the Bible, of Jesus depicting the final judgment. And we can spend a lot of time unpacking what it all means. The piece that I want to focus in, though, is the question when he says, hey, well, we didn't see you, Jesus, hungry. So the people are like, well, Jesus, if you would have been hungry, would it would have fed you. And what does Jesus say to them? I was there. I was the hungry person that you walked by. I was the naked person who you didn't clothe. Okay. Christian has the word Christ in it. Because to be a Christian is to what? To be a follower of Jesus Christ. To be trusting in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the pinnacle of the Christian experience would be what? To meet Jesus. Right? I mean... Okay, if we had a little sign-up today that said, hey, we have an opportunity this evening, a little meet and greet, kind of a little photo booth, and Jesus is going to be stopping by for a few minutes. I'm wondering, would anybody be interested in signing up tonight? I think we'd have the connection card filled out pretty quick. Guess what Jesus is saying? I I am present. I'm present with these individuals who are struggling. And and when, when you... When you're with them, loving them, guess what? You're with me. You're doing something to me. How, how does that work? I got no idea how that works. And I'm fine saying that. All I know is that though Jesus says it, and God's word records it for us, that we experience Christ when we're loving people. Guess what? You want to experience Christ this next week? You want to spend time with Jesus? Well, at 2 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, go down to Southridge Nursing Home and just stop in the room where you see no pictures or cards on the bulletin board. There's plenty of them to be found. Because in those rooms are people made in the image of God who are struggling, who are lonely. And when you love on those people, Jesus is saying, guess what? You're loving on me. You're experiencing me. You want to spend time with Jesus this next week? Head downtown to the center of hope and spend time with the individual who's just coming out of prison looking for a bike to try and restart their work career a little bit. And when you're helping them teach how to fix a bike or just talking with them, praying as them, receiving their bike, guess what? You're loving on Jesus. Because Jesus is present there. These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. That the pinnacle of the Christian experience is not gathering on Sunday mornings. It's necessary. It's awesome. It's great. We should continue to do it all of the time. The pinnacle of the Christian experience is loving people. Because when we're loving people, we're experiencing the one whose love we're expressing. It can't be found in science. It can't be found in logic. It's just revealed in God's word to us. If you want to get to the pinnacle of Christianity, if you want to have the full expression of Christianity, it's when we're loving on people. 
Too often in the church, we've defined maturity by knowledge. Knowledge is a great thing, a necessary thing. Knowledge, the purpose of knowledge, though, in the Bible is this, to shape and form us into lovers. This is the difference between Bible study from a Christian perspective and Bible study from an academic perspective. No one's going to be asked at the judgment seat, hey, who was the mother of Abraham? That knowledge can help us understand God's overarching purpose at different times and shape and form us. But guess what? If that knowledge doesn't shape us into a lover, that knowledge is useless. Because the pinnacle of the Christian experience, the fullness of life that God wants for us, is a life of love. Let's look back in Luke chapter 10 if you're not convinced yet. Luke chapter 10, we've probably got the most famous Bible story of all time. We know the parable, the story of who's called the Good Samaritan. But what I want you to focus on for a moment is the setup to the story. Why does Jesus tell this story of the Good Samaritan? It's because a lawyer, now this lawyer is not one that we think of. A lawyer that we think of is one who knows the law in the civil area. Business, finance, criminal. The lawyer that approaching Jesus is one who is religious, understands the religious laws. So this religious law understanderer, that's a word, is trying to what? Trick Jesus. Trying to kind of get Jesus into a little bit of a corner because Jesus has been causing an uproar in the religion community. Because in the religious community, people are starting to gather around him in the temple. People are starting to spend time with prostitutes and drunks and, and people with leprosy. So there's a little bit of an uproar going on. So what do the religious leaders do? Let's send our brightest and best. Let's stump Jesus here. And so they go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, we want to know, you know, how do we have this life relationship with God? And Jesus says to them, well, what does the law say? The law being what has God revealed about what he wants for his creation. The guy says, yeah, love God. Jesus says, you're right. And the guy also says, love your neighbor as yourself. Stop right there. Look with me in Luke 10 at the end of verse 27. What does the law say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this is the fullness of God's love, of God's law. That loving your neighbor is the ultimate expression of all of God's law. And so Jesus then says, hey, the guy tries to thump Jesus a little bit further by saying, well, who's my neighbor so I can know who to love? And so the reason that we get the story of the Good Samaritan is so that Jesus can give us a picture of what? How to love our neighbor. In other words, Jesus has given us the story of the Good Samaritan to give us a picture or an understanding of the full expression of the life that God wants for us. Because the law is what? Revelation of what God wants. And so in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what do we have? We have a picture painted by Jesus of the ultimate life that God wants for his people. And so often when you and I read this story, we've lost the bang because we know it so well. And so this morning as I was reading this, no one fell off their chair, right? I mean, you didn't think, oh, no big deal. Samaritan helping some guy on the side of the road. This is a big deal. 
This last week at community group at our house at the end, we were sharing some prayer requests. And, and the prayer request that I shared with the group is I said, this might sound kind of odd, I realize this. I said, hey, I'm trying a new thing in life, trying to get a little more discipline. I'm trying to drink 64 ounces of water every day and get a little bit healthier. My wife just about fell off of her chair. She's looking like, what? You actually care about health? The level of surprise there was just huge. Because you're what? You're used to something, and then something from the way outside, like, whoa, that's different. When we hear this story about Jesus, you know what should, Jesus is telling you should happen? We should be like, what? They, they did what? What? That doesn't match my experience. Because what's happening here is Jesus is, is saying, hey, this is what it means to love your neighbor. And the people that he uses in the story are people that have serious animosity for one another. The Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. They did not get along at least for over a 1,300-year period. They had a little bit of ethnic fighting going on. In the Old Testament, the nation Israel, after King David and Solomon, got split into two separate nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Well, in the northern kingdom, the Samaritans were present. And in the southern kingdom were people, the ethnic Jews, and a little bit of strife started between the two groups. And over the thousand years, came to the point of hating one another, despising one another, to the point of this, that if you're at the well getting water and you're a Samaritan, you're not present when a Jew comes. Maybe some of you are familiar with that story in John chapter 4 of a Samaritan woman at the well. Why is she there at a time when no one else is there? Because they can't interact with Jews. Okay. The Samaritan Jews did not like each other. And to prove the point, James and John, followers of Jesus Christ, just probably days, weeks, maybe before this message here of the Good Samaritan, James and John requested of Jesus that Jesus would burn down a Samaritan town. If you're reading the Gospels, you'll find a situation where they have this experience and then James and John basically say, Jesus, rain down your fire. Bring your judgment right now against the Samaritan city. So the very people that Jesus' disciples were saying, rain down your fire, guess what Jesus does? He flips it. He says, these people in the story are the neighbor. Now where we usually miss the point on this is this. The Samaritan is not the one who falls in the ditch. The one who falls in the ditch is a Jew. The Samaritan is the one who's helping. The lawyer wanted to know, who's my neighbor? Well, you, it would have made sense then for Jesus to make the, the Samaritan the one who falls in the ditch, right? And then say, hey, as a Jew, you've got to enter into the ditch and help them. Jesus flips it and says, the Samaritan is the one who enters into the ditch and helps. So not only is the enemy the one who is your neighbor, but the enemy is what? the good neighbor who you're supposed to follow the example of. So in other words, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, gets to the end of it, and basically says to the lawyer, not, hey, the Samaritan is your neighbor, but basically says to him, are you a neighbor like the Samaritan? Does your life reflect that of the Samaritans? Does your heart reflect that of the Samaritans? Because what is the Samaritan's heart? The Samaritan's heart is described in the story from Jesus as one of compassion. In other words, one where their insides well up with pity or desire to help someone. 
There's one difference, basically, between the Samaritan and the Jews that pass by. A priest and a Levite pass by. They know the law really well. They would have known the Levitical code of where it talked about helping and touching blood, so they might have actually had a good reason to not help. But guess what? There's no mention that they have this thing called compassion. What does the Samaritan have? Compassion. Something welling up within them that moves them to action. How about you and I this morning? Do we have something within us that breaks when we see fellow humanity struggling? People created in the image of God who have a physical, spiritual, financial need where they can't experience the wholeness of God's peace. And Jesus is saying, hey, check yourself. Are are you like the Samaritan, the neighbor who has that compassion for people? And check out what this compassion leads to. This compassion leads to what? Not just that, hey, let me help you get back on the road. But pick them up, bandage them, and then what? Take them to an inn. That's pretty good. And then one step further. Hey, here's a couple of coins to pay for today's challenges. Then what? A blank check. What does he say? He says, hey, and whatever else you need, I'll reimburse you later. I know what you're thinking. You're like me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a line here. Come on. We're going to help people, but we've got to be responsible in how we're helping people. I don't know. I'm just, the story just says, hey, I'll take care of whatever else is needed. You, You can wrestle with that all that you want, but it's there. So for you and I today, People who are seeking to live out the full expression of Christianity. People who want to experience the fullness of Jesus Christ. Where do we experience that? And how do we live out the full expression of Christianity? It's when we love people. And the story that Jesus gives to describe what it means to love your neighbor is a story of caring for people in need. Of finding people who are despised and rejected. And coming alongside of them to know them and to help meet their very needs. Now this raises all sorts of challenges and legitimate challenges. How do we help people in a healthy way that helps them, does not enable them? That's a legitimate question. You have to come back next Sunday for an answer. This raises all sorts of questions like, okay, there's a lot of people that need help. How do we determine who to help, you got to come back next Sunday for the answer. But before we get into the details, we've got to have the heart. We've got to have the vision. Do you know what happens if you don't have the heart and the vision and you start talking about rules, you start talking about structure? That rule and structure become constraints. And what happens with the constraints? It causes you to start acting even more frivolous and wilder. And so the first thing we've got to do is ask ourselves, do we have the heart? Do we have the heart of God that says, the fast that he desires is clothing the naked and feeding the hungry? Do we have the heart of Jesus that says, I'm going to go visit the prisoner?" 
Because you know what I say? Well, the prisoner doesn't deserve it. Right? They're a prisoner for a reason. They've done something wrong. And yet Jesus still says what? Go and visit them. Even though they don't deserve it. Because that's the love of God. And in order for you and I to get the heart of God, all we have to do is reflect upon the love that God has had for you and I. So you might say, well, they put themselves in that position. You know what? They shouldn't have started drinking in the first place. They put themselves in that position of poverty. You know what? That individual shouldn't have slept with that other individual and caused all of that chaos. They caused it. They should live with it. Can you imagine if God had the same mentality about you and I? God could look at you and I today and say, hey, they caused the destruction. They chose to sin. They put themselves there. But what does God do? In the midst of our rebellion, he enters in. In the midst of our rebellion, he extends not just a hand. He extends a whole body of his son, Jesus Christ. And so there's tough stuff to wrestle with. But before we wrestle with the tough stuff, let's examine our hearts and let's ask ourselves, do I have the heart formed by God that wants to love as God has loved us? The goal is not to be a good Samaritan. The goal is to have the full expression of Christianity, to be everything God created us to be. And you know what God created us to be? God created us to be lovers. That's why his law is summarized in love God and love your neighbor. And so this morning, how's your heart? Two things to think about as you leave this morning. Have you understood the depth of God's love for you? Have you understood the depth of God's love for you? Until you do, it's really hard to be a lover. Second thing, who are you loving today intentionally where you would experience the presence of Christ? Who are you loving intentionally today where you would experience the presence of Christ? I want to be where Jesus is at. Because where Jesus is at is where there's love. And where Jesus is at is where there's life for eternity. And Jesus is in the struggle, inviting us to come and to love. Thanks be to God for the love expressed to us through Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God that he gives us the opportunity to express that love to one another. Let us pray. Loving Father, we give thanks that you first loved us and we ask now that you would remind us of that love that you have for us. And over the next week, God, we ask that you'd shape and form our hearts to have your same heart of love. God, I ask today that you'd break our hearts for what breaks your heart. And God, I pray today that you'd give us your perspective when we see other people. So God, we thank you for your patience with us 
as we seek to be formed and shaped into your image. And I pray now in the coming week and next week as we gather again, God, that you would begin to shape and form our thinking so that we could do this in a way that's meaningful. We could do this in a way that glorifies you as we love on our community. So God, we ask that you continue to teach us from your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.